This is a download from BFM 89.9, the business station. Hi, welcome to Breaking Bread. This is the show where we explore food through culture, conversations, and a whole lot of curiosity. I'm your host, Lo Yi Jun, a food writer and recipe developer from the Jun and Tonic blog. On this season of our show, we are diving headfirst into Malaysia's fine dining scene. So throughout the season, we'll be speaking with renowned chefs and industry peers throughout the country to learn about their journey, understand their cooking philosophies, and get an insider's look at the current state of the Malaysian food industry. Our guest for this episode is Darren Teo, who's perhaps the most well-known figurehead driving forward Malaysian fine dining on the world's culinary stage. His restaurant Dawakan has appeared in Asia's 50 best and 100 best restaurant lists multiple times, and so it is such a privilege to be able to talk to him on this episode. We'll find out about the growth and evolution of Dawakan, explore some local ingredients, and hear about his perspective on Malaysia's dining scene as a whole. So without further ado, here's Darren Teo. Hi, Chef Darren. Welcome onto the show. Hello. Glad to be on it. Yeah, thanks for taking your time today. So, let's begin. But yeah, talking about you, and I think most, if not everyone in the food space in Malaysia will have none of your name, if not of Dewakan as well. But for the benefit of perhaps those BFM listeners who are less familiar with the food and dining scene, uh, but are just tuning in, uh, how would you describe yourself and Dewakan Restaurant? Um, I, I'm not sure how to describe myself, but uh, I'll start with the restaurant. <laughs> um, the restaurant is, the restaurant has been around since 2015 and we've always been focused on trying to put a repertoire of, um, Malaysian ingredients, um, both natural as well as indigenous, um, in the most creative way that, um, we, we can. Um, and we, we typically a uh, tasting menu format restaurant. And so, so we try to put things that are quite non-lateral or unusual ingredients as well as the way to present them onto a menu. Mm, yeah. So you started that work in 2015, you were saying, but recently in 20, well, end of 2019, you actually moved from your previous location in, in KDU to NASA Tower, right? This was December, was it? 2019? Right, yeah, can you tell us about yeah, that, that shift and uh, some of the big changes, if, if there were any, with the restaurant uh, in terms of like the menu and the food, perhaps? Um, I, I don't think that you would say that there were, there were big changes. I mean, if you look, if you look back in, 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 in retrospect, there definitely is from where we started and where we are now. Um, but it, the move was merely a different step in the evolution and the revolution of the restaurant. We had an amazing run in our former space, our former home in um, the hospitality school of um, KDU, also known as UOW KDU now. Um, and we, we, we had a wonderful run there, but we, we also realized that we wanted to do more and uh, we were slowly outgrowing the space in terms of what we would like to potentially um, achieve. 
through our cooking. So it became necessary for us to to track down a new space and and um, and the people at NASA were very welcoming and um, and they they made us feel very very much at home. Um, and so that's why we chose this location. Um, and this allowed us to to take up to about four to five years of, of, of learning and unlearning uh, and, and also sort of deciding what we wanted to be and how we wanted to be. And then put that into an empty space and, and construct a, a restaurant that, that we thought would be best representative of what we wanted to achieve. Mm, mm. And just as a, I guess, like a bit of a background, I've only actually been to your restaurant once before, and this was when you were still in the the KDU location. And this was like many years back, probably like your second or third year in, in business. And the the format of the menu that I had back then compared with what I've heard from your new place in Naza Tower, it, it seems very different because previously with each course, uh, there's I guess, one singular dish per course, I suppose. But then um, with the new iteration of, of your menu, I heard that there's been, with each course comes like almost like a, a, a slew or like a combination of, of many different components, small sets of dishes that come out with each course. Yeah, can, can you tell us a bit, a bit about that concept or that format of menu and why did you choose to serve it in, in that way? Well, I think what we what we didn't want to be was we didn't want to be lazy with how we felt a menu should be like. And so with every iteration or every menu change, we challenged ourselves to to you know to let, let's look at the customer experience differently and, and let's look at what we thought would be interesting for us to share and what 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 would be interesting for a guest to partake in and uh, and we've always and to be fair, we've always kind of done that. There's always been an element of, um, of participation. There's always been an element of surprise, and every every iteration of the menu has has had a paradigm shift, uh, so to speak. But I think if what you're talking about, and especially with like our first two cycles of menus that we've had when since we've moved to the new space, was was really because something we decided as a team was that. Any any sort of like notion towards a tasting menu would be is very Eurocentric, um, mm. and that doesn't accurately describe how we kind of eat. And we wanted something that would help represent how we eat a little bit better. Um, we like we like multitudes. We like um, we like having a lot of selections. You know, we like having a little bit of this, a little bit of that, but not so much in totality. Um, and, and so that, so we kind of fashioned, we kind of fashioned our current menus to kind of reflect that. Oh yeah, that, that is very true. Yeah. I never thought about it in that way, but yeah, it totally makes sense now in that a lot of Asian cuisine and, and especially yeah, Malaysia falls into that as well. We like like spreads of dishes with you our, yeah. with our meals. Mm. In, um, and, and, and not in like, uh, not in like, we, we like selections rather than we like, uh, like a singular and in ample form, right? So, mm. so everything from Korean selections of pickled vegetables that come with like whatever meal. Um, from if you go to um, any f- family sort of setting, you'll be like 
there'll be a couple of dishes, you know, all at one time. Um, mm. Yeah, and, and and that I think I mean I think that gave us um, clearer. Well, I mean, they helped to 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 clarify how we would like to cook as well. So that format then um, not dictated but influenced the kind of the kind of cooking and the kind of style that we wanted to that we wanted to have. Mm, mm. Yeah, I, I I really like that. You know, there's the reflection of the style, not not only I guess the flavors and the ingredients that we use, but also the style of eating in yeah. in your menu. Yeah. Yeah. I mean mm. I, I, I would like to think and maybe it's just me, but I, I would like to think that we we have a very cerebral approach to everything that we put on the menu. And I think mm. that kind of and it kind of like um it cues my sort of like curiosity with that. Yeah, and, and it certainly shows. Mm. Let's talk about some of the ingredients and, and flavors that you use. And you're you're known for using our local ingredients, uh, some indigenous ones as well, uh, quite heavily in your menu. You have ingredients like, uh, look through your menu and, and saw things like salom, boisala, bambangan, boakaloa. But there are also a few there that I've not encountered before like there's a bua and like sarabai yeah can you tell us about some of uh, these um less well-known ingredients i suppose and and yeah t- tell us about some some interesting ones um yeah we've got a couple of them uh well i i i think first of all i think we should also just acknowledge that a lot of these ingredients are not lost or forgotten they're just lost and forgotten to us Yes, uh, because mm. we're urban and we have no contact with living things. Um, mm. The extent of our fruits extend towards extend towards the supermarket or your pasamalam, and even then, also you don't you don't get a like a you don't you don't have like a, a selection of of fruits that are grown within the country. You know, you're most likely to have an apple in your fridge rather than what's in season right now. Um, Having said that, it has truly been an exciting discovery, an exciting journey for uh, for myself and for the team to constantly be um, surrounded by by ingredients that will continue to surprise us. And we we find that it's not only just a challenge, but also it's it's I think a a little bit like a life's work to kind of put that into. Um, context for for the people who live in in the area that we are serving um, that the Malaysian biodiversity is super interesting and it will really really be interesting and beneficial for us all to to have like some eyeballs on it and to to at least to 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 be a part of um, of sort of like it's mapping lah. Um, mm. So having said that, we have we have a couple of interesting ingredients. So like you said, the the parah being one of them, the lateral spermum um, is the Latin name for it, and um, it's it's a it's um it's a nut. Well, it's not a nut really. It's like yeah, it's like yeah, it's kind of like a nut um, that's usually found in on the uh, in quite deep in the jungle and. Uh, it has, I don't know how to describe it really. It's just, it's a, it's a nutty, it's, it's nutty, um, but it's also bitter at the same time. Um, and mm-hmm. you, you kind of have to know how to process it. Um, it takes a little bit of 
takes a little bit of effort to process it and comes it usually fruits in the area where where the tree is um, at least about once a year and so the native people then kind of collect it when it's in season and they would use it um, as a as a flavoring um, and so we take we kind of take cues from that and and then sort of like insert that into our menu um, mm. we have right now we also have things like um, the crunchy which is the crunchy is a, a black almost olive looking um, fruit um, but it has a sort of like a like a like a hard skin on the outside and on the inside is a sort of like a pulpy um, spongy spongy rather than rather than pulpy spongy sort of like a fruit with a seed on the inside and it tastes quite similar to tamarind um, oh. so we yeah we use that right now with on our current menu um, and we use that as a base for one of our for for a, for a cockle dish mm. yeah so usually when you come across an ingredient that you've not worked with before like in the case of i guess the buapara or the karanji right what's the thought process behind like how should i feature this how should i use this dish like for the karanji you were saying you ended up serving it uh together with uh with cockles right you were saying how how did that idea come about um i don't know <laughs> um, but I, I think I think it, like many things, right? You you have to be quite apt at using the product first and and understand uh, what it is first. Uh, a few couple of years ago, I shared a stage with a chef, and um, and he said something quite poignant. And he said that you know the ingredients are always local, but um, the technique that's what's global, right? Um, mm. and, and, and that made a lot of sense to me because that's, that's really quite similar to what we're doing. What we start off with is we, we look at how they are originally being used, right? And who the, what, what community is using them and how they're being used. And then we kind of duplicate that first and see where it takes us. Um, mm. and after we've, we've, we've explored that, then we start looking at what other potentials uh, exist. And then we have like quite a lot of techniques at our disposal from, you know, we have a very huge library of um, preservation techniques, so either through fermentation or, or something, salting or something like this. And uh, this allows us a different dimension. Um, and we'll continue to... to to play around with this ingredient until we find something that, that oh, okay, now this in this current form has got potential. And only then do we see where it goes onto a plate. Mm. And when you say it has potential, does that mainly come in terms of the flavor first? It's always flavor first, but, mm. but I think it's quite simplistic to just put your money just on flavor. Like, you, I mean, the form it comes in also then dictates how you would use it, right? So, for example, the crunchy, right? And the crunchy has got a very tamarind-esque sort of flavor. Now, you could then figure out how you want to use that and decide that, okay, we can pickle it or we can dry it or we can uh, turn that into a pulp and make it into a paste 
Um, so all of these different sort of textures or this sort of like uh, or the forms that it comes in then determine how we, what the usage is going to be like. So in which case, in our case, we decided that I'll make it into a paste. We made it into a paste and it tastes really, really nice. Uh, we added it with, I think we added it with, uh, initially, I think when we started, we added it with a, a goat garum uh, for salinity and then, and that tasted really good. And I said, okay, you know what, this really be good with uh, some sort of seafood and then grilled and then, and then we chunk and then and then some cockles came into the restaurant and we said, okay, let's try it with the cockles. Um, and it worked out. So mm. so I think like people assume that when we come up with dishes that there's sort of like this epiphanious moment um, where oh, you know, like uh, voila, you know, but a lot of these a lot of a lot of the instances where a good dish comes about um, is premeditated both in inspiration as well as in experience. So in inspiration, meaning that, well, let, let, let's start with experience first because experience then gives you context into how this dish, uh, how an ingredient uh, presents itself and, uh, and in the various forms that it does present itself. And that comes from your constant learning, right? So that's why we, we take a particular ingredient and we try different things with it. And we, we try to see what kind of forms it can uh, manifest itself into and then there's the point of inspiration and the inspiration comes from having that bank of experience or the bank of knowledge which then gives you that contextual um, that contextual direction mm. Mm. yeah it's drawing from this like deep well of knowledge that you already had uh, like prior knowledge and prior experiences right rather this than this one like romanticized like voila moment Absolutely. So, so Maslow, Maslow, um, Maslow has a saying, right? Uh, that if the only tool you know is a hammer, everything looks like a nail. <laughs> mm. um, and and we, I think that's true. So if if you only know how to do like one thing, or if you know only how to use one thing, uh, you're gonna like try and apply that to everything, and that gives you a very single dimensional. And it works for some things. It works for some for some aspects. It works for like say the guy who's like frying chocolate, right? Because he doesn't have to diversify his his knowledge. He just knows that needs to know how to do this repeatedly and to do it well repeatedly. Um, in our case, it's a little bit less so. So we are fueled by by a lot of knowledge generation and a lot of uh, acquisition of uh, information, and that makes a lot of sense for us. Not just in the sphere of cooking or ingredients, but also what's going on uh, around the world with, with art or with technology and uh, with um, trends and, and, and what other restaurants are doing, etc., etc. Mm, mm. So rather than just like a hammer, you have kind of like this dynamic, ever-changing toolbox of tools, I guess. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. So I, 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 I mean, it's it's a toolbox, and it's not. It's not ever changing. It's ever growing, um, and it's definitely dynamic. But but it's dynamic to the point of what you what you would like to use it for. Mm, yeah, yeah. I think that encapsulates well, like the approach and a bit of the philosophy behind, uh, yeah, how how you go about creating your dishes. Before we continue our conversation, we are going to take a quick break. Stay with us, you're listening to Breaking Bread on BFM 
Welcome back to Breaking Bread. I've been speaking with Darren Dio from Dewakan. We've been chatting about some of the indigenous ingredients he's been toying with recently in his menu, but now we're turning our focus to talking about the Malaysian fine dining scene at large. As is the theme of uh, this season of uh, our show, uh, we're looking into the Malaysian FNB, Malaysian dining scene as a whole as well. So yeah, I'd like to pivot our conversation towards that. And I think in the food industry, within, I guess, like industry peers, especially um, people in the more finer dining sort of sphere, there's often this gripe or like criticism towards like Malaysia's uh, dining scene where, oh, we, we're not growing as fast, we're not as advanced, as mature as uh, many other countries out there, including our neighbours. Like, I guess Singapore and Thailand is often like the the closest comparison. So with that in mind, I'd like to kind of kick off this discussion with something you said in the past that has stuck with me, actually, and I'm just probably paraphrasing it, uh, where you mentioned that Malaysians, when although like Malaysians, we say we love food, right? But it's often the fact that we are more interested in the act of eating itself rather than the food. Yeah. So I was wondering if you can expand on this and, and what do you mean by that? And, and what's the distinction between a love of eating and a love of food? Um, I think in the past that people have looked at what we what I've said um, with regards to that and assumed that, that it's a it's a it's a it's a polarizing statement. Um, I'm not saying that the love of eating is right or wrong. I'm just saying that, in the, that the description of us liking food or liking eating and that cannot be synonymous with the growth rate of the restaurant industry. Um, I think they're distinctly two different things. Mm. We are a community of consumers uh, we consume um, so sometimes in many instances it doesn't matter what kind of quality or what kind of uh, ethos a particular business has it's just going to i mean it, if it's in the right time in the right space it's just going to get consumed um, and you'll be consumed until it can no longer be consumed or there's no one left to consume it uh, before consumers then start to go elsewhere and consume that as well. Um, you can see in many, many instances, businesses who have um, done exceptionally well in the beginning and then after that um, struggle to, to stay afloat um, immediately after they're no longer as, they're no longer as trendy to, to be at. Mm. Um, and, you know, I mean, Malaysians are a curious bunch, but I, I, I don't think we are necessarily a community of people that has a lot of uh, concern over food. Um, because if we were, we would, we would be in touch more with the production end of uh, where, our, where our food is coming from. You know, we would be, there would be, there would be more pride in, in um the production of some of these some of these things like I don't know like maybe like a soy sauce or a voodoo or something like this you know but but we're not um, because our fixation is more with like consuming um, mm, like the end product itself 
the act of consumption sometimes is not objectively about the product, you know, mm. as you just want to. I mean, I'll give you an example. Like years, years, maybe a decade or two ago, there was there, McDonald's had this Hello Kitty um, thing that you buy with like uh, a Happy Meal, right? And in very true Malaysian fashion, um, the mile-long lines outside McDonald's just to get this particular soft toy, uh, which is available at probably, I don't know, Toys R Us or something like this. It's not like it was, a, I mean, it's not like you couldn't get this, this particular toy. But because it was there and it was accessible, the demand for it was, was astronomical. There, there really wasn't a reason for you to make any of those purchases a Happy Meal or the Hello Kitty because you could satisfy both. I mean, we're not talking about children. You're not talking about like, you know, not talking about like a five-year-old, six-year-old which for which the, the Happy Meal was supposedly intended for. You're talking about grown adults um, mm. who wanted to make collections of these things and, and, and I get it. I get it. But then it, but, but it, it, it really didn't fulfill anything else except for the urge to purchase something and then to amass something mm. right i'd be curious to know what happened to all of these collections of people who um who had these dolls i, I, I guess more recently there was that whole the mcdonald's also had like a bts meal right and yeah, it's the I mean, same it's that right it's I mean, it's yeah. bad, but it's also every new opening of a eatery um and and they would experience three to six months of you know constant constant uh, visitors and then almost overnight it disappears. And how many times have you heard that same story with, 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 with restaurateurs? Um, mm. and, it's, uh, and it's habitual. So, I mean, it doesn't necessarily reflect a, a community that's concerned with a restaurant or the art of, not the art, but, you know, the experience of eating at a restaurant or dining at a restaurant. In fact, it, I mean, it shows something else. Like, you know, it shows... Um, it shows what people do at the restaurant, you know, and, and what their priorities are. Mm. So what would a community who cares about the restaurant industry, who, who cares about food look like? How, how would that community or society look like? I, I don't think a, a community needs to care about the restaurant industry. Um, a restaurant, like everything else, is a business. But... The, the phrase that you use after, um, which is uh, a community that, I, I think I think that that dining has got many parts to it. Um, there is first and foremost the communal aspect in which there is the the um, is the the fellowship. It's the dining is the company, and that's where most of the best dinners that you would ever experience would always revolve around uh, the company that you've had. Um, and then after that would be the food, and then also the delivery of that food, eventually service, and that that's your that's that's really your restaurant. Um, and I think that I I can't tell you what it would look like, but I will tell, but I can tell you that you will find more interesting restaurants. You will find uh, better run restaurants. You will find um, happier restaurants in communities like that. Mm. And how do we get there? I guess how do we improve our the current state of of the food industry? Um, 
I think, first of all, it has to be an attractive place, right? Both, both for people who want to eat and also, or who want to experience this and people also who want to provide that service. The amount of talent by virtue of an identification card, by virtue of identification card, the amount of talent that this country produces in terms of, in terms of um, culinary strength or even restaurateurs or even wine sommeliers or, or anybody who works in the service industry is, is immense because it, you don't have to go very far to see um, this talent being used and used well. Singapore has got a, a ton of musicians that are working there. You know, Macau, Hong Kong, a lot of a lot of these guys have, have plied their trade in countries where um, a, a restaurant just operates differently than how it does here. Um, and I feel that so it, if it's not the talent and it's def, and it's not it's not investors it's because there is money around um, for people to, to capitalize on and I, I think I think also the market has to kind of graduate a little bit um, and move past move past this idea that uh, you're just meant there to, to feed yourself I mean, mm-hmm. If someone struggled with value, I think that one of the the biggest debates is, is which I think obviously is the, the the value the the debate of value, right? I mean, if you go to a place and you're ex, you're paying an, an X amount of money for it, and and maybe you see like the ingredients are subpar, or or at least to your in your eyes, um, not what you're paying for, but you're also forgetting to think that it's still a business and they're not just selling you ingredients. Someone has to cook that ingredient. Uh, someone has to serve it. You have to pay for rent. Someone pays for the electricity. Someone pays for the water. And all of this needs to get paid by your bill. So mm-hmm. every um, amenity that you're, that you're enjoying, the fact that you've got a chair to sit on, uh, you've got an air conditioning, all of that gets paid for your bill. It's not just the ingredient. You know, um, you're also paying for the skill. You're also paying for um, the people who who's, who who get a salary. You know, mm-hmm. um, and and I think that once we depart from or yeah, once we depart from the idea that that we're only paying for ingredients, um, I think that's like a good step already. Um, that could be a start. Yeah, yeah, it's it's very true that Malaysians, particularly, are very sensitive to to pricing especially when it comes to food and i guess the one of the big reasons for that is because our food outside of like most i guess like restaurant or, or more expensive restaurant food is like street food right and then street food or like mamas and they're like super cheap and when you compare it against all these restaurants that are that are perhaps like fine or even like casual fine restaurants it's like really hard to to put the two together and, and the comparison is just like stark. Um, no, I disagree with that statement because um, because I think that the people who, 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 who go to places like this also do go to places like... I, I think they're able to make the discernment between um, the class of restaurants that you're deciding to eat and the purpose of restaurants and the purpose that you, that you uh, go mm. to these restaurants, right? So if you go to a mama, you're not going to compare it. And it's not just because it's cheaper that you go, especially in the Klang Valley. Um, um, how do you justify someone paying a thousand over dollars for, let's say, a Wagyu tomahawk? 
right? So the cost price for that versus, you know, versus something else. It's not that there is no money and it's not that they're price sensitive. It's not about price sensitivity. It's what it is. It is about seeing the value and then appropriating what value you think uh, fits what you want to pay. But mm, more often mm. than not, that value that you that that the community or at least um, the patrons decide on is is often not an accurate um, description. Mm, like it doesn't account for all the work and and all the effort and logistics and and whatnot. The whole chain that that feeds into that that yeah that so so product. so it's very yeah. skewed in the sense that when people go to a restaurant in here they look only at what's being served but they don't look at the dining experience and that's why that's why i say it's about consumerism it's about consuming the act of consumption it's like i want to go i'm going to eat my wagyu double hawk or, or or whatever it is um, but you don't look at everything else. It's just like, okay, look, the price I'm paying is for this, but not for the experience. Mm. And you can use that sort of mentality uh, for certain things. You know, like if you go to a quick service restaurant and you say like, well, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to get, or you go to like, you know, like a, a, a by the road type of thing and you say, I'm going to get a fried chicken and, and there is nothing, there is no place where you sit. There's nothing. You just pick up a fried chicken then you know you're paying for an ingredient plus a little bit more, right? Mm-hmm. Um, you can use that sort of logical frame of thought for that, but you could not use it for going to a restaurant where uh, someone opens your door or someone chooses your wine or someone fixes you a, a cocktail or a mocktail or someone who, uh, who cooks outside of their menu to comply with your dietary uh, uh, requirements. You know, you, you can't apply that same sort of logic. Mm-hmm. So how how would you break that mentality then? I mean, I there's no easy answer. Um, but yeah, I just just wanna um, wondering if you had any thoughts about it. Well, when we first started, I I I think in many ways that was what I wanted to do. I thought we'd change, um, we'd change ideas. I mean, we'd change how people thought. Um, but. But I've also, but I, but I also, but you know, there's also something that resonates with me quite a lot is that, um, which then also sets the pace for uh, a lot of the reasons why I do certain things. And, and um, it's that it doesn't matter how loud you're shouting, uh, what matters is who's listening. So mm. if, you know, if you're if you're trying to educate the world or you're trying to educate everybody, um, and they don't want to be educated, right? You kind of there there is a point where you can you you're gonna kind of have to let go, so to speak, you know, or 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 you know these are grown people that make decisions for themselves. Um, so a lot of what we do is is to speak to the people who who want to listen to what we have to say. And so I find that spending more time and more effort, more of my resources um, on, on this group of people um, allows me to be, to be more effective and to um, at least be happier. Um, 
with the people that that who who do want to listen, you know, and 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 it's not necessary that everybody who listens agrees with us. That's that's not mm-hmm. even the case. Um, a lot of people listen to us but do not agree with us. But at least there is a conversation. Yeah, that is quite poignant. I must say, it's like I guess with this bunch of like episodes that I'm doing as well. I I see it as a small point of it. It's like, oh yeah, I'm I'm hoping to, you know, share more of the views or, or perhaps some of the struggles or challenges or certain messages that people in the food industry and chefs might want to share with the Malaysian public. But if to the people who are not willing to to listen, right, there's it's very hard to to get through to them with whatever message you're trying to to shout or whatever you're trying to to educate or share about, right? Mm, that is... Yeah, I mean, like if, if you if you mm. look at just tearing apart, like what's the read? What's the what's the what's the viewership for BFM, right? In the grander scheme of things, and then after that, what's the viewership for your show? You know, so mm. that kind of like trickles down, and then and 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 I think what's important is not so much who, how many people have to listen to it. I think the question is really. The real question really is this, I mean, doing this is not for the listeners. The reason why I agree to do this is for you. Um, and so that you have a, a direct access to how I think uh, about, about certain issues, you know, and, 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 and by perchance there's someone else listening to this um, and this influences the way that they think, and great, you know, but it's not, it was not, it's not wholly intended, or at least my intention was not for them. It was, it was for you and I to have this conversation. Mm, yeah, but it's definitely a plus if there are people out there who, who has like, probably like gleaned something from from this conversation that we're having. Because yeah, I'm, I'm certainly like learning a lot and, and like understanding a lot of your your thoughts as well. And it's been really interesting. Um, yeah, and just to... I guess tie everything together, uh, mainly due to our time constraints. I, I'm, I could talk about this like even longer, to be honest. But yeah, just wondering, what's in the next one to to two years for you, uh, in terms of, I guess your your personal food growth and also for Dewakan. Are there any big plans or, or at least like significant uh, milestones that you're hoping to to hit, or yeah, or, or are you? Um, just taking it as it as it comes. Um, I I don't think we've ever had like milestones um, that are extrinsic. Um, I think we will continue to just do what we're doing and then try and get better at it. I think that's that's really just been what we do lah. We just try to be better at what we are and 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 find some sort of satisfaction in in, in topping ourselves. Hmm. And that that helps us uh, stay focused on what's like what's important. Mm. Yeah, that is just uh, it's that like one percent increase every day and kind of like yeah, compound. Yeah. I mean, just being satisfied with ourselves, you know, being satisfied with ourselves, being and being honest with ourselves, and being really um, uh, frank with ourselves and saying like, okay, look, you know, we could have done this better, or we could have done that better, or or this is really good, um, but what if we tried it? With, this way what if we try that this way and that helps us to to build you know and i, I think 
I think we are a part of this red race, but we don't want to get too too crazy into it. Um, as long as we are a, a financially sound establishment, uh, which is where the struggle, of course, always is, um, we want to be able to do our craft and uh, um, be happy with, with what we're doing and and making money is part of that. Uh, but also, but also being not taking it too seriously to the point like, you know, it's like an art form because it's not an art form. It's a craft, it's a job. Um, but also not, but also not dismissing it that there is no fun in it. Um, and so that's, that's a really important part of, of what we do. Trying to mm. be authentic um, as, as people. Yeah, and, and I too hope that you keep finding lots of uh, satisfaction and lots of fun as well in what you do. And on behalf of, I would say, like a lot of Malaysian eaters out there, I just want to say thank you for, for doing what you do. And it's not an, an easy ride, um, but yeah, it's, it's really important what, what you're doing for the Malaysian food industry as well. Yeah, so with that, I uh, just want to say thank you so much, Darren. Um, and thanks for your time again today and, and for, for sharing and, and for having this conversation with me. Yeah, thank you for having me. That is all for this week's show. To listen to more episodes, you can find us on iTunes, Spotify, or on the BFM app. And if you're hungry for more food news and fun recipes, you can keep up to date with me on Instagram. I'm at Jun and Tonic. That's J-U-N dot A-N-D dot T-O-N-I-C. This is Jun signing off. You've been listening to Breaking Bread on BFM 89.9. Thank you for listening to this podcast. To find more great interviews, go to bfm.my or find us on iTunes. BFM 89.9, The Business Station.